Welcome to Beyond the Cast, where real stories meet inspiration. Join us as we dive into the personal journeys of incredible individuals sharing their powerful testimonies. Each episode is a testament to resilience, triumph, and the wisdom gained through life's challenges. Get ready to be inspired, motivated, and empowered. This is Beyond the Cast, where stories come to life and lessons transform. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody, it's Santino. I'm with my good friend, Josh Johnson, owner of Spot Hog. And man, we've had a couple great days just creating content, but uh, part of why I wanted to set this up where we could have a conversation is because every time you and I talk, we do meetings almost weekly and I love talking with, I love talking archery, but I like talking archery with guys that have like an engineer mindset and uh, there's all these little tricks of the trade that, you know, again, you, you grew up learning and is probably second nature for you. Just like certain things with us are second nature. But, um, I feel like we get to go down these rabbit holes of all this information, like with some of these tips and videos that we're going to launch for spot hog with you talking about helping customers optimize accuracy and all that. Um, it's pretty incredible. So I appreciate the last few days, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think in some of our conversations, it's important to, yeah, I know your story. I don't know a lot of people know your story about Spot Hog and how the company started and, you know, with your dad and your brothers and just that that whole thing. So I, I, I would like to open it up for, you know, you being able to share that and talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Um, our start was really odd because uh, dad just liked, uh, basically, I, me and my brother kept breaking equipment and and stuff wasn't working and we didn't have much money so dad was just trying to find some way to make so we could have our you know ability to go shoot and whatnot and not be so expensive and so uh by trade dad was machinist and so he was making little sites and little arrs and things for me and my brother so that we could go out and do our thing we go out every single week it was uh twice a week usually dad would drag us out of the house uh the rule was is that he'd Drag, drag us out to the range to get us out of our mom's hair. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's what we did growing up. So, yeah, since I, we've been shooting for a long time. Um, the beginning of our company was uh, all started with uh, um, dad had met Freddie Troncoso at the Vegas shoot. And he had made these rests for us so that because we were having problems getting our, 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 our uh, bows tuned up. And so what happened was he made these rests where they were micro adjustable. And he shows it to Freddie, and Freddie thought it was such a cool thing. He put it in his pocket on the spot and said, let's go talk somewhere else. And that started basically a handshake deal. You make these, and I'll sell them. And that's, that's the beginning of the, the Premier Rest and the Rover and Platinum Premier and all those different things. That's awesome. It's, it was a great opportunity because it got us in the game. That was what brought us in the game was Freddie Trunco. So we owe a lot to uh, Freddie for that, that opportunity. But when you started, like, what was tournament archery like back then? So you say your dad would take you and you guys would go shoot these tournaments. Was it, you know, small groups? Was it a big thing? Because you guys are based out of Eugene, Oregon. It was it was or- the same click. I mean, like, you go out to the range now and there's the same 40 guys that are always there at the shoot that are, like, the hardcore guys that are really into it. And there's the random people that show up from time to time. And Right. But, yeah, I mean, it was a... It was uh, very competitive, and the, the thing was with the, I mean, as a kid, there wasn't a lot of competition. There wasn't a lot of kids that were participating because back in those days, getting a bow just that draw length was quite the feat. Right. Uh, most kids' bows were like kind of a joke bow. They weren't really like a competition bow, and to get into one, like a true competition kids' bow, it was expensive. It was really expensive. Yeah. 
And, you know, what parent wants to put, you know, thousands of dollars back in those days when you're, I mean, they, dad could barely justify putting a thousand dollars into his own equipment, let alone his kids. Right. So the name Spot Hog, that's a pretty cool story. You guys were, we, you mind sharing that? You guys were at a shoot? Yeah. So uh, we got the name of Spot Hog by, uh, my dad was shooting at a competition and uh, I believe it was in, it was like an NFAA format or something. So basically you had the first person stepped up to the butt and they shot and then the next people came in behind you and then they shot. Well, dad had put all four arrows in the, in the spot. And the guy that comes up behind him smacks directly in the back of his arrow and kicks his arrow out. He's like, what the heck, Steve? And the other guy that was standing there shoots and he hits in the spot and he knocks his <laughs> arrow out too. And then uh, I think it was on the third time they shot and they hit my dad's arrows again and kicked him out of the spot again. And I quit hogging the spot, Steve. And that was how the name Spot Hog got created. That was the so birth was, of it. Yeah. It was from uh, Well, that was the, the birth of the company was the idea that we were going to sell, sell these sites. Right. So we were always selling those arrow rests to, to Golden Key. And then dad had made the Hooter Shooter and he'd made the uh, our sites that we have, which was the Hoggett. Right. And he showed those to Freddie. And, well, it wasn't Freddie at that time. It was his boys had taken over. But he showed it to him and they just weren't interested. They thought it's too expensive. No one would be interested in that. And so they go, well, let's dad's view was well then if you don't want them we'll we'll create this other company and they chose spot hog for the name and we'll sell these sites to that company and then we'll just sell all of our error rests to you and meanwhile anything that you guys don't want any part that we come up with we will offer it to you first at golden key but if you don't want it then we'll take that and we'll we'll sell it through this other company right i was gonna ask like with you know, starting like a premium product like that was something like you said guys wouldn't even justify back then you know, barely, you know, they, they would get the bow that they could afford. What was it like within your dad that wanted to build premium archery products? Or did you ever have that conversation with him? Um, yeah, I mean, dad wanted an advantage is what it really came down to is he wanted to, he wanted his equipment to operate in ways that the equipment he was buying wouldn't let him do. So the ARS, for instance, you know, he wanted, he was paper, you know, tears and tuning bows and was having struggling with it. And he wanted to move it just to, just a you know thousandths of an inch but the problem is it was loose and lock and it would jump on you and there was no really repeatability repeatability about it and so right. it got frustrating trying to you know make those little micro adjustments on your arrow rest to get a better performance out of your arrow yeah so he would build sites build arrow rest build things that you could make smaller adjustments to and be able to get uh more precise settings to see if you could get better results out of his equipment i mean really what it came down to is he tinkered Right. <laughs> he likes to tinker. So, yeah. you know, as well as I do, if you want to tinker with stuff and you got course adjust versus micro adjust, it's really hard to tinker with course adjust. Right. So, like the Hooter Shooter, I didn't realize that was one of the, be you know, starting products that you guys came out with. What was the, what was the, the idea or <laughs> what created that? The Hooter Shooter came around in a, for a really weird reason. Basically, we were trying to prove that we weren't crazy. So we had all these theories, like for instance, if you like back in the day, you uh, you had swedge knocks. So your the end of your arrow kind of had the swedge on it, and you'd sandpaper it, and you had to take your knock and twist it and shove it onto the and kind of press onto the end. Well, sometimes it would tip this way, that way, and if you you weren't hitting well, it was like a known thing. Just take your knock off and put it back on again, and it changed where the arrow would impact at. And we were trying to prove that the arrows were it was changing the arrows impact, but we were being told that it wasn't. And so over time, um, you know, kind of messing around with your equipment and shooting, you go, well, how do you know? How, how could I believe that you got a good shot that time and that when you change the knock, it changed your point of impact one way or the other? And then, you know, as time went on, 
Well, let me let me change that actually because we were the sledge knock showed that you get different points of impact, but as arrows progressed, and we also we had the inserts where you were putting your knock and it was going inside the arrow, right? And as we were changing the knock orientation, we believed that we were getting a different point of impact by just the way your knock was oriented. So if you had cock vein up, it would hit differently than if it was cock vein to the left or the right or whatever. And and so Dad built that machine just because he wanted to be able to prove that. Um, that when you made these changes to the equipment that you could repeatedly see that you were getting a result downrange. And so what happened was, is he built the machine and proved that you could shoot the same arrow in the same hole. And by, if you could shoot the same arrow into the same hole, that means you're getting complete repeatability. So then the question is, well, where do, my, where do all my arrows hit? Right. How does this work if I change my draw length? What happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? And once again, it goes back to dad being a tinker. Right. He just wanted to see what caused what. So I would say like, just thinking about that in, in that process, it probably identified any imperfections in your own rest, imperfections in arrows, knowing that like each arrow spine oh, it wasn't it, completely straight. It showed bows that were bad. It showed sights that were bad. It showed rests that weren't good. It showed arrows that were good quality or bad quality. Yeah. It really like showed a lot of stuff and it was really indiscriminate. It didn't care about brands. It didn't care about what was popular. It was, that's just what it was. It, it just would shine the light on what was true and what was not. Yeah. And so like you learned real quick that, uh, you know, just for instance, like one of the things was it's like all your arrows don't hit in the same spot. But if you change your knock orientation, you could find one hole, you know, you'd have. So the idea is like most people have like a, let's say you're shooting your cock vein right through the middle of your prongs. That's how we used to shoot way back in the day. Was mm-hmm. there was always the one, th- you know, you had your prongs and it was spring loaded, and you run your cock vein through the bottom. Well, what happens if you was to, if I was to leave the arrow knocked up to the string and I twist it, so now the cock vein is at two o'clock. I still have one going going through the prongs, but the offset one is now here. It hit in a different point of impact, and I leave it knocked up again. I twist it now, and now the cock vein is at ten o'clock, and it hit in a different point of impact. And then if I take it off, or I put it back on, I, and I twist it back down to the original point of cock vein down, it hit back in the original hole it did the first time, showing that all three of those were different points of impact, but also it was repeatable, right? But now what happens if I take the arrow off and I turn, I leave a cock vein down, and I turn the knock 180 degrees and put it back on, right? It hit in a different spot, and then again for the 10 o'clock spot, and then again for the two, uh, the uh, two, two o'clock spot. And so in turn, you had six different points of impact. If you were having your cock vein always, or a vein going through your prongs, you had six different points of impact for that one arrow. Well, then what happens when you compare that to all your arrows? And what we found is if you bought the plus or minus 1,000 arrows, uh, the higher quality arrows, and you went through all the different orientations, there was one hole that all of them would be willing to head in. So you take someone like me and my dad and my brother, who was really into, you know, we were shooting competition a lot, and you're standing on the line and you know every one of your arrows hits in the exact same hole. And there's nobody on this line that you're shooting against that has arrows that hit in the same spot. That's and a whole different level what of confidence. an advantage. Right. Yeah. And so it got turned into like, it really started shining. Like, I, I, you know, I, we were winning a lot doing that stuff, but there were times we lost too, where you know, we weren't winning. What does that say about the guys we were shooting against? Holy cow. I mean, we had huge advantages and, people were still whooping us <laughs> well there's always natural ability and talent and yeah. you see them when you go to asas there's just guys that can show up hold on a 14 ring call it yeah. and they can make those shots yeah there's guys i mean you see those guys all the time they're incredibly talented and you go man imagine if we tuned up his stuff for sure he'd be unstoppable yeah so like companies started using hooter shooters right like mm-hmm. bow companies they would i'm sure that they would test 
certain things. You see companies that like, they well, they have machines now that'll dry fire bows to taste, test tolerances or whatnot. But uh, do you feel like with a Hooter shooter just revolutionized or helped other companies elevate? Because yeah. well, when it first came out, people didn't like it because it was. I think a dealer told me this once. He says, you know what, you know what Spot Hog's problem is? You guys are doing a good thing, but you're, you're, the problem that you have at Spot Hog is, is that you're making archery more complicated. You're not making it easier. You're making it harder. You're adding tuning concepts that are, you're having to take into account. It raised the bar. And it also, because it raised the bar on shooters, it also raised the bar on equipment where you know certain flaws in equipment were getting exposed. And it was forcing uh, certain companies to have to, take accountability that maybe this design of this bow or this arrow or whatever wasn't as optimum. That feels like a lazy statement though. Well, it's easy from our perspective of having the tool and exposing this. It's easy for us to say, well, you should just make a better piece of equipment. Well, that's easier said than done. Right. Um, it's, it's adding work. I mean, do you want, do you want someone to come into your, you're totally happy and content with what you're doing and somebody just show up and say, Hey, everything you're doing is wrong. (laughs) it's it's happened it's happened i guess if you survival (laughs) like if you want to build something that has sustainability like do your best to make it quality and if somebody can add or if something can add value to it right yeah look look what socials mean or social media has done for businesses yeah yeah like initially it just started out as like a fun thing and now businesses rely on it as their main source and i think things are always going to change it's just cool to me that spot hog your family created this product that i would look at it from the other side that it helped elevate how people look at quality products yeah yeah for sure and it, it did it, it it like i said it it's it irritated some people when it first came out but yeah as as there's other manufacturers that bought it and bought into it and used the idea that hey if this thing really works the way that they're saying it does it would actually help us build a better product and they were excited about that right there was other people that just got frustrated because we were basically, they were putting out products and they were not really, um, their, their priority was selling units, not necessarily selling quality units. Like a good example is, is, you know, not every bow is the same. And you run into that a lot with, uh, to this day still, there's, there's lemons and cherries when it comes to archery equipment, especially in the bow world. And, uh, you know, you can have two bows that are the same. They're both 70 pounds, 29 inch draw length. And the only difference is the serial number, same model, brand, everything. And one of them shoots better than the other one does. Right. You know, and so what happens is there's just, uh, when you're putting all those components together and there's any type of lack of, you know, tolerances, if you have a sloppy limb sitting in your, you know, if your limb pocket has a little slop in it and your limb slops back and forth in it, and this other one that you put together doesn't. It's a real nice tight fit. Well, what's going to happen on the one that has slop? It's going to, the cables are going to pull it to the side and it's going to slop one specific way towards the cable guard side. Right. Well, then you have your cam that's sitting like this. You'd like to think your cam is sitting in line like that. But now, because it's leaned out, your limbs are leaned out. Now your cam's sitting like this. And what happens is when you draw your bow back and that cam's not doing this around towards you, it's doing this around as it draws back and that's how you'll see like uh typically you'll if you have a bow that has a really bad paper tear that you can't get rid of a left and right paper tear and it always wants to go what if you watch it on a high-speed camera you draw that bow back to full draw what happens is the actual string won't go in a straight line forward it'll do this 
So as the, and that's your cam as it's going out to the, it gets to the flat point and as it goes out around the bow, it's pushing your string out as you're drawing back and then comes back to the middle again as you get closer to your axle on the cam as it comes around. Right. So when you release it, it does the same pattern back. And then what's happening is your arrow is doing this and then coming off the string and kicking to the left, thus the knock left paper tear that you can't get rid of. But when that's not set up straight, like with that example where it's coming off and kind of, it's actually probably doing more wear and tear, right? Like it's going it, to, it probably could magnify over so many shots because that it's just not set up properly or true. Well, and the thing is, is like, that's not an easy thing to fix. Right. And so you, you, what most people did that time was, is you, if you didn't know how to fix things like that, you just get a stiffer arrow, you know, you'd run stiffer arrows and it would, it would compensate for the bad paper tears that you're getting. Right. But, you know, we were showing that stuff to the public, and that wasn't necessarily um, beneficial to um, those manufacturers. It made their equipment look bad. Got it. Um, and it, that wasn't the goal, though. To us, it wasn't about telling on them and being like, ha, you're making bad stuff. It was no. just like, look, this doesn't work very well, and it's making it really hard for archers. And the harder we make it for archers to have fun and hit what they're aiming at, the less likely they are to continue to shoot and be part of our industry. Right. You know, if, if we can make better equipment, allowing people to be able to shoot longer distances, shoot more accurately, they're going to have a lot more fun. They're going to tell their friends. It's going to draw in more people and make our industry bigger. But if you can't hit the side of a wall from 20 yards because the equipment's kind of, you know, cockeyed, people get frustrated. They'll, you don't, nobody wants to do something that's frustrating. No, for sure. I mean, my dad was odd that way. They like, he liked when things were weird and messed up because it was like his Rubik's cube. He just wanted to figure it out. <laughs> but the average archer just wants to play. They just want to go shoot and have fun. They don't want to mess with their bow. They want to go shoot. Right. Well, talking about the industry, your, your company has had a ton of success. I've known about it since I, I, I got it in the space, you know, 18 years ago. And I remember one of the commercials, I don't know if you, you guys produced it, but it was like a guy like running over it or fell off the truck and it was just, you know, built tough. Oh. Um, do you remember that? Yeah. So that was actually a funny story about the, how that happened. I don't remember who did the truck. That was somebody that was, it was a show that we were working on. Somebody did that. I forget who it was though. But the whole premise of that started with, uh, we had made the hogget. We were still selling stuff to golden key. We had made the hogget and was selling that through spot hog, but we had just one site and it was the hogget. And I went to the local shop, uh, which is Wayne Indicott's uh, bow rack in Springfield. And I was shooting leagues there and I was talking to him and he goes, you guys need to offer more sites. I'm like, well, how do you make something better than this? And he goes, you don't make something better than this. You make this something that's lower quality than this. Still quality, you know, durable, but maybe not so many adjustments. This is too complicated. Most people don't understand all the, your adjustments that you have. This thing's a lot for the average person. This is like a, you, what you've made is a competition site. You need to make a hunting site. You know, make it simpler. Take the, take your bubble adjustments out. The second, what's now known as second and third axis, you know, take that out of it. Make it just a, you know, square concept with your, your individually adjustable pins like you got. And I went back and told my dad about it and he kind of heed and hawed. He's like, well, why would we build something that's less quality? Why would we, if we're going to build something, let's build something better. And I'm like, because maybe this isn't for everybody. We're, we're broken the brain competition shooters. It's a lot for the average Joe to be interested in this. And so maybe we, maybe Wayne's right. Maybe we do need to make something that's maybe a little more simple for the average guy. And so my dad came out and he, he showed me this site that he had designed a prototype and he goes, it's the toughest site you'll ever see, Josh. And I said, Oh yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I go, 
Um, I go, what do you mean? He goes, it's, it's built tough. And uh, I go, do you got, is this your only prototype? And he goes, yeah. And I go, can I test it? And he goes, yeah. And I stuck it on the ground like that with the pin guard down and the bar down. And I stomped it with my foot and it snapped in half. I kind of laughed and I go, no, it's not. (laughs) And I handed it to dad and my dad, uh, he takes it and he goes, I'll be back. (laughs) Just like, I'll be back. And he walked back and like about a week later, he, or maybe I don't know if it was a week, maybe a couple days later, he comes back and goes, toughest sight you'll ever see, Josh. And hands it to me and I stuck it on the ground and I go, I, I go, can I stomp this one too? He goes, yeah, I'd absolutely stomp it. He goes, I didn't know that was the test, but okay, stomp it. And so I went to stomping that thing and hitting it. And by the end of it, I rolled my ankle and I busted the air sole out of my shoe. <laughs> so I'm like, wa- I was changing machines in the shop. So the rest of the day, I'm like walking all weird because my soles of my shoes are damaged yep. from stomping this thing. But I couldn't break it. And that was what ended up being the real deal. And well, so we showed that to like people that you could do that, that you could stand on these. And then it turned into like this ad where I had Chris hop on my back and take a picture of me standing on it. To, to show like how tough our stuff was. Cause I mean, whose site out there would could handle somebody standing on it or stomping on it or anything like that. That was not, right. that was never the premise of what was called a tough site. Right. Back in those days. Well, and I think about the guys that they're on a tree stand and maybe they, they get a little nervous or they move around. They've been sitting in a stand all day and their bow drops, right? Like yeah. the worst thing that could happen other than their bow breaking is their sight busting off. And, you know, you think about the guys that are, hiking mountains and going over rocks and doing sheep hunts or or even just strapping your bow on your pack and it's taking all this abuse like i remember when i saw that commercial that was like one of the coolest things i was like that like a car just ran over a guy picked it up shoots the sight you know shows up the target or that the arrow's hitting exactly where he was aiming like to me that was like a big thing but to see where you guys have come this far you've also grown uh out you know with some of the conversations we've had over the last few days but very intentionally with the right people yeah like you're not your typical company that's just going out and looking for you know to sponsor everybody and anybody and but you've also had a great lineup of people that have been loyal to your brand and i would test that too because of the toughness like that like out of all the years i've been using your guys' sites for about 16 years now i don't even think about it like I i don't that's like the last thing i worry about failing on me but it's because i've proven it with all the places I've traveled, but yeah, I know we've always done things different. It was just the way dad always wanted things to be like, uh, I, he told me one time, if you do what everybody else does, you're only going to get as far as everybody else. So if you want to get past him, you got to do something different. Yeah. And I took that to heart. It was, that was a, a true statement. It's true. Um, what happened, I think, with our uh, marketing wise was uh, so I got moved out of the shop and told I had to do the marketing for the company. I didn't go to school for that. I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I literally had nothing to work with, but just watching magazine ads and calling people and asking a thousand questions, going to the trade show and just not being afraid to ask all the really dumb questions. Right. And uh, part of that was is. Uh, there was, there was a lot of uh, people telling me what you're supposed to, you know, what's, what you're supposed to do. Oh, you have to sponsor these guys, and you have to have these videos, and you have to have this and that and whatever. And we never really went that route. We always went with uh, real basic stuff about like simple mad ad magazines. We didn't get the big full pages. We got the little quarter pages, and 
we always did a slow grow with everything we did because we didn't have a big budget to do it with. And, uh, and same with like with our sponsorships, people would, you know, want come up and want to sponsor their stuff. And what would happen was you send them, you give them some free product and then they jump ship within a year to the, to the next free thing and the next free thing and the next free thing. And there was really no staying power. And at one point what we had uh, decided was, or I decided was that I'm not going to let, I'm not going to sponsor anybody unless they've been shooting my site for at least a year before they ever even approach me about it. So one of the reasons we went into the, our methods for our sponsoring was I was trying to work with people, but they just kind of kept jumping ship. They always, whatever the new hot thing was, that was where the, the people would go. And so we would, getting someone to use our sites, to me, it was important that I didn't want people to think that they were using my site because they were paid to use it. I wanted people to know that they, our stuff was being used because they wanted to. And so what happened was, is I put the rule in place that if you didn't shoot my site for, you know, before we ever even started working with you, there was no way that I was even going to consider sponsoring you. Uh, like a good example is Lee and Tiffany. Lee and Tiffany shot our site for three years. We didn't sponsor them. They liked it. Right. Cameron Haynes shot our sites for, man, I don't know how long before we ever sponsored him. I mean, most anybody we sponsor, they have shot our site for years before we ever even considered doing any sponsorship work with them which is cool because what that means is they 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 chose my product and they didn't choose it because i was helping pay their bills by sponsoring them they chose it because they thought it was the best right which means they believed in it and that's one of the really cool things there's not a lot of companies out there that can say whether you know whether it be in the aeros bows not just sites anybody out there that can really say 100 percent of all the people i sponsor were shooting my sites for free before i ever paid them right and that says a lot about how much they have, what value they put in my equipment, that they believe in it that much that I'll use it whether I'm getting paid or not because I want to know that I can trust that my equipment's going to work and not break and let me down in the field. Right. That's big. No, it's huge. And that's like, it, it's great to see the growth where, where you've come from like starting with your dad, you know, and, and doing the, the tournament things and your dad just wanting to make a better, higher quality product to where like today. So your CEO you run the business is that correct no me and my brother run the business oh, you together. And, okay you and your brother run the business okay my dad's yeah. been out of it now for about 10 years <clears throat> his goal was he was going to come in one less day every year so every year on his birthday he'd come <laughs> in one less day until finally he didn't come in at all perfect and so uh but me and my brother have been running it for i mean we were running long before he actually stopped coming in but right having him there dad was always tied to the shop dad always thought marketing and sales was stupid he goes, you guys cost us money. <laughs> you don't make stuff. <laughs> so he was all about the machine shop, all about design and, and you know, the uh, production side of things, which is where my brother worked. So dad not being part of the company, I think, affected my brother a lot harder than it did me because he lost his go-to guy. Right. He could always look over his shoulder and be like, hey, dad, what do you think of this? You know, is this a good idea? Is that a bad idea? In the marketing world, I had nobody to ask. It right. Was, I had to call and whatever I could source out by asking other people in the industry. But some of the technology that you have now, like we are working on, you know, with some of the screws are like making those minor pin adjustments, right? Mm -hmm. You back one out and then, and then you turn it, but the, yeah, it's very methodical or systematic in the right appropriate way to do it because then you can maximize all the benefits that your products have. You try to innovate things and make new stuff all the time, but you know, in the end there's only so many ways to skin a cat. They all kind of get it naked. Right. But the reality is, is that, um, there's a lot of copying that's happened 
um, over the years. That's one thing we really tried to pride ourselves on is that we never copied anybody. We don't ever do, if I can't take a, a, an idea and add three new things to it to make it that much better than what, so it's not just me copying it. I'm, I'm taking the premise you're working with and I'm adding three more things on top of that. We won't do it. Right. I mean, that's why people still say to this day, like, why is it spot hog having an arrest? And we're like, well, we don't want to just go out and copy everybody. Right. And honestly, we, that was our beginning. We, we were the air arrest company. We were the king of the roost for, I don't know how many years through Golden Futura, uh, Key Futura. The premiere was the number one arrest. Everyone knows what a Golden Key uh, premiere was from back in the day. Yeah. But uh, we, that was, we could come back out with an arrest, but we want to make sure that if we're going to do it, we're doing something bigger and better and above and beyond than just going out and saying, hey, uh, let's just make a hamski. Let's right. go copy a, a trophy taker. <laughs> you know, put that out there. I mean, yeah, anybody can copy. Right. And we've been copied. People have done that to us with, and copied our products, 100% tried to copy our products. But we're not in that. We're not in the market to just go out and copy and do the, the the Me Too products. You right. Know, we, we want it to be original. It's got to be, have serve a purpose. Some of the cool things that the Hooter Shooter did was, I mean, it, by by far, it was giving me and my brother uh, and my dad a ridiculous advantage in archery competition. It was pretty bad. Because <laughs> I mean, there was it wasn't just the arrow tuning, but I mean, you just take that one alone. Everybody's arrows are grouped like this at 20 yards, and mine are like that. Right. And if you're shooting this at 20 yards, sorry, I'm bumping your mic, double that. That's what you got at 40. And double that again. That's what you got at 80. And I'm doing this at 20, double that at 40, and double that again at 80. I mean, we're talking a, a night and a difference. That was just one aspect that the Hooter Shoe was giving us. We were doing the creep tuning thing too. So back in those days, you had big valleys in your. In your draw. So when you come back to full draw, you get your back of the valley and the front of the valley. And that's why everybody talked about the idea of how, uh, you know, you had to shoot with back tension was to basically what they're trying to do is force themselves to be at the same draw length point every single time, because we knew that if you varied your draw length, you got a different point of impact. Right. Well, what dad figured out was with the machine was that if he was changing the timing of his cams, uh, and changing the wheeling, of our wheels, we were able to actually effectively change what happened if you were at the back of the valley or the front of the valley. And so what we would do is we draw the bow back to the full draw, back against the wall, and like my brother would stand there and put a mark over my prongs on my arrow. And I'd intentionally creep down to the front of the wall, and he'd put a mark over it there. And what we do is we put that in the machine, draw it back and relay that into the machine and put those marks on the machine. Then we draw it back to the, the full draw length mark, and look, I mean, I literally sit on a bucket right next to the machine. I'm looking through my peep, centering up on my ring. And I'm, and our hooter shooter had a little, uh, uh, worm gear drive concept. Where I'm, I'm turning a knob and moving it left and right and up and down. I dial it in. So I'm dead center in the little spot at the long draw, fire off the shot, go down there and you'd mark it L1 for the long one. Take that same arrow, come back, put it in the machine again, draw it back to the short draw. And you, what's interesting is you get down there and look, you're not aimed in the spot anymore. Draw it all the way back to the long draw. I'm dead center in the middle of the spot again. Creep it back down to the short draw. I'm not aimed in the spot anymore. So I'd re-aim it in at the short draw. So I'm dead center in the middle of the spot. Fire off the shot. And what would always happen is the long would hit low. And the short would always hit high. Like 99% of the time. And sometimes there'd be a left and right difference. But there was always an up and down difference. Well, what dad had figured out was is by just putting a twist on your string taking a twist off, putting a twist on 50, mm -hmm. 50, better or worse. So you go to the press, 
you make the the change to your string, you come back and you you reestablish your draw length. So what happens is if you do put a twist on your string, you're changing your draw length. So you got to go back and get the draw for the long, make a mark, get the draw for the short, make a mark, relay that back on the machine. So now you have two new marks on the machine because you fudge your draw length a little bit and do the process again. And you'd find that by going one direction, it would get farther apart, going the other direction, they get closer. So then you keep going that direction and keep going that direction. And eventually I could get them so they'd be the exact same height. Then I could start changing my wheeling and effectively change the left and right and bring them into the exact same hole. Wow. So now I'm out at the range. I now not only have my second axis set, my third axis set at full draw, which most people didn't know about the whole torque and at full draw and how that was affecting you. They just set it on them like a bench leveling jig, which we know is a very precise way of setting it wrong. Right. Shooter. It's very precisely done, but wrong because it wasn't for the guy. It didn't take into account the guy's grip. Mm Mm-hmm. So I have my second axis, my third axis set. I've got all my arrows tuned to hit in the same hole, and I can be anywhere in that draw length and never get punished. Mm. I mean, what an advantage. No, for sure. Is it incredible? Well, and then I think when you get off the hooter shooter and you start shooting yourself, you start thinking about that process. You try to replicate being a hooter shooter. Naturally, you're just going to get better, Absolutely. right, if, if you think about it that way. Yeah. It's, it's like a lot of other things, but that's really cool. And so in turn, as we did that, um, I felt guilty about it. I felt like we were cheating. <laughs> um, Cabe kind of did. He was. He kind of felt like, well, you know, we, we, it's not like we were telling people about it. I'm like, yeah, but they don't. Nobody can just go build a hooter shooter, right? And uh, so I started pushing and, and sharing with people and helping people learn about the machine. Try to get a, one set up out at our local range to help you know give other people opportunities to be able to use a machine that we just donate to them. Uh, that people could use. The problem is, is there's always, you know, there's always the one jerks that ruin it for all the good, good people, you know, and damaged it and broke it and was doing unsafe things with it. And right. Well, there's always going to be that. There's guy. always that. <laughs> but anyways, but so what was really interesting was, as we did this, we started finding out that equipment issues. So one of the things that got told over and over and over, it was the big thing was like with target panic or with your equipment, you just need to practice more. You need to practice more. You need to practice more. And it's like, well, I can practice on blue in the face. The equipment's not capable of doing, I'm a better shot than my equipment. The equipment's not capable of doing what I want it to do. Right. Um, and it's punishing me. And so, and I, like I said, I'm not going to name the names of them, but like one of the examples was, is my dad had built this little axle squareness gauge. And, uh, it was a bow that I had saved up all my birthday money. And it looks like I said, it was hard to get a, a youth bow. And so I saved up all my birthday money and some jobs I was doing over, over uh, I think for aunts and uncles or grandpa or whatever over the summer. Saved up all this money and I get this bow. I finally get a state of the art, top tier bow, youth shooting bow. And it is a tiger by the tail. We cannot tune it. It's a fight. I mean, something's not right about it. The, the wheels look crazy weird and leaning and and so dad built this little gauge where he, he stuck a, a piece of aluminum in a mill and he milled it so it was perfectly flat and without taking it out of the vise so it was still the same plane and surface he drilled a hole in it and then pressed a 316 style pin into it and then what we did is we we took the bow apart and he checked the he shoved it into the axle holes on the limb he took the limbs off the bow that limb was out over the length of the limb, about like this with our little gauge that we had, there was about that much of a gap showing that it was like the axle holes were drilled totally crooked inside the actual limb. And we're talking not like 
you know, a quarter of an inch out over the length of the limb. We're talking like an inch and a half out over the length of the limb of us, how crooked those holes were drilled in that, wow. that uh, limb. He called the manufacturer about it, and they, the person that answered and their tech representative said, it doesn't matter, you need to practice more. <laughs> that was the response we got. And it was like, no, it doesn't matter how much I practice. I suppose going to be a tiger by the tail. We paid a lot of money for this. And so dad, which always scared me when he did stuff like this, he filled the holes up with JB weld and then re-drilled them out. So they were perfectly square. And we assembled it back up. And that bow was one of the best shooting bows. I won so many competitions with that bow. <laughs> but when we first got it, I mean, I would have, it was, it was hard to keep under control at 25 yards. Right. But well, just, just something as simple as that is that your axle holes being, you know, drilled in crooked was making that bow an absolute tiger by the tail. Right. And so we tried to present stuff like that. We tried to use our, our dorky techness and we tried to share that. Some companies were really receptive. There was another company um, that we told that to, that they had crooked axle holes. And their response was, how do you figure? And we told them we had this little gauge that we made and whatever. And he said, they said, send us one. We sent it to them. And we just thought that was the end of it. We'd never hear from them again. They called back and go, we checked your gauge. We agree. It's legit. And of the 150,000 limbs that are in our place, not one of them straight. And they said, send us four more of those gauges and they'll all be from here on out. I mean, talk about two different attitudes, right? Two different major, major, still around top bow manufacturers. And one's attitude was, it doesn't matter. And the other one is really, well, let's make it better. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's, uh, the guys that have your engineer mindset sounds like you, know, you, you inherited that from your dad that got passed down to you and probably with your brother as well. Oh, for sure. You know, and that, that level of innovation, it's like, it, it's amazing to see, even from when I started shooting about about 17 years ago, like how, how much has grown, you know, third axis tuning and just, just little tricks of the trade, like even just making chalk lines or like the making marks on your cams where your limbs are to make sure that timing's not off. I can't tell you how many guys have, well, proper arrow building. You know, there's so many guys that want to tinker with their bow. They shoot three or four arrows and they don't name them. That's yep. one thing we did. You know, we named my arrows. I <laughs> got yep. Tony Stark. I got Yoda. Yep. And like everyone is so quick to make an adjustment versus going and breaking it down. But if you don't know how to break it down or you don't have quick reference marks or anything that you can check, yeah, you, you could be chasing your tail for a really, really long time. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that you run into is if you don't have some form of reference to look at, uh, like I remember that was one of the, I think I, I don't know who came up with marking the bow like that. I want to say it was my brother was the one that was doing it, but just the cam one. I mean, I still marked all the bolts and stuff because I was always nervous that something was going to move or whatever. But when you're shooting high end competition, where you're shooting with the guys for money, you can't afford even two shots to figure out what's wrong. You have to quickly figure out if something has changed. Is it me? Did I make a bad shot? I just dropped out of the spot at 42 yards in Reading. Is that because I my bow changed or did I just make a bad shot? Because that's now two targets in a row where I'm just dropping out of the spot. Um, first and second in, in my division wasn't decided by, you know, uh, 10 point difference. It was by one, you know, one point. Yeah. And so you really couldn't afford to to not be able to quickly look and see and make sure, is it me doing something bad or is it, you know, something wrong with my equipment? So being able to look at your cam and all of a sudden it's down there in the heat. And I looked down at my cam and I had my little pencil line marks on the cam that was kind of shadowed the limb. And all of a sudden I can't see one. And the other ones are clearly my string stretched or my own of my cable stretched. Right. 
And we talked about that yesterday. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm immediately going to go have to compensate and be like, okay, I'm obviously hitting low now. So that means I'm going to have to give it a little bit at every single, say if it's 43 yards, I need to shoot it for 44 yards or 45 yards. And I can finish the shootout and still be relevant in the, in the competition. Right. But to, uh, that's happened many times where I was in shoots and all of a sudden I looked down and my string stretched and I had to compensate on the fly and still try to finish the tournament. Yeah. But if I didn't have that, I could shoot rather than just being able to look and know instead it was you'd spend the next 10 targets trying to figure out you know is there something wrong is it me is it the bow is it me is it the bow and you had no way of knowing the truth right so that's where that came from was was really was just because we were really into our competition and um, everyone who's ever shot for any long period of time knows about string stretching is it's a thing no for sure it can happen at any point in time right could happen on a hunt. It could happen on a hunt. Yeah. It could happen at a tournament weekend. That's another thing was is uh, you get your bow all set up here, let's say, and then you guys guys do this all the time that I've hunted with. Drives me crazy. They'll drive. They'll get their bow set up at home, and then they'll drive over, and they literally just walk right out in the woods and go hunting. And I'm like, dude, you probably should check your marks and make sure that things are still good. And and it's like their views. Well, no, I got it set up. Everything's good. This and that, whatever. And and I've had guys go out and wound animals literally opening day. Yeah. We ended up spending two days looking for Yep. all because they didn't check their marks when they got to camp. And they would have found out right away that, oh, my string's not where I thought it was. And rather than spending the first day um, fixing their equipment and maybe missing an opening day of season, instead they've just made everybody stop hunting to go look for their wounded animal for two days. Right. Because they didn't want to put the the the, the puts a little due diligence into their making sure their stuff's right, but it even got more than that. That was really interesting. Like, so when where we're at over in, in uh, Western Oregon, uh, where our shops at, versus where we hunt, where we hunt's like five thousand elevation over in Eastern Oregon, and where we're at's like not even a thousand feet in the valley of the you know the Willamette Valley. An interesting thing is you change where you're going to, your bow changes. Yeah. So sure. you think that, you know, you got your tape set up and your speed of your bow and everything's good and great. And I think it was my brother was the one that pointed it out. Um, I could take my bow and check my axle to axle with a tape. So I want to see what my, my axle to axle is. Well, let's say it's 42 and a 16th inches. And I go over to Eastern Oregon. It's 42 and a 32nd inches. So my actual axle to axle has changed. And we thought that was just from, you know, a string stretching or something or something changed in that nature. But the truth was, is you could take your bow and check your axle axle. Because I actually took a bow over hunting season. Just, I took one over just for the test. That I didn't even shoot. I just had it. I checked the axle axle, drove over to hunting camp, checked it again. Didn't, I wasn't even using that bow for hunting. But when I came back, it was back to 42 and a 16th. So the air pressure or whatever it is, the barometer of the, the yeah. area, I mean, the bow's axle axle is changing. If the axle axle is changing, that means your string's changing, your sight mark's changing, your speed has now changed. It's not the same. No. And so I can't harp enough that, you know, especially like where you're at, I look at, you know, we walk out your door and I can see the Rockies, <laughs> you know, the tops of the mountains up there. I mean, you yeah. come from here, you set your bow up here and you're hunting way up there. You better check your marks when you get up there because it's going to be a different result than what you're dealing with down here. No, for sure. And that that's something I've been mindful of, um, you know, with just some of the guys I've been able to shoot with that are way more knowledgeable than me. I think uh, 
we were talking about this too the other day or yesterday as far as um there's like i don't i don't want to call it a rite of passage but there are things in archery that you have to earn like you have to you have to be diligent i've had guys when i used to guide on hunts you know they'd show up on bow hunts the worst one and for whatever reason i'm, I'm not trying to beat up on the guy but for whatever reason he had the concept that he could show up with packaging he had a site brand new in the packaging his rest the bow still had the tag on it and he goes he thought as guys we were going to set him up teach him how to shoot and then go hunt oh wow yeah <laughs> and i said well we well, need wouldn't that be nice if that's how it worked well <laughs> maybe but i actually enjoyed the process of practicing because it, you feel like you earn something if you've been i know but i'm just saying like, yeah yeah like if archery was just that easy that you could just slap it together and still salvage it i mean at that point that had been overwhelming well no it was and i had to talk with the head outfitter i told ray I, I need to take this guy into town took him to my bow shop after day one he was so sore like i didn't even know he was going to get back for the hunt but the, the clock's ticking his yeah. hunt started you know he scheduled it but he was still nice enough to realize oh my goodness i had no idea like i need this and that's kind of some of the stuff that he saw online he thought it was as easy as he saw a video where a guy walked in got his bow set up you know, it was like looked or appeared to be at a camp, but it was somewhere where he went to the, a bow shop first, got set up, and then went on a hunt. And for whatever reason, he thought he could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And because of his busy lifestyle, just didn't take didn't take that into account. Anyways, gets back to camp, hunts finally day four. He ended up shooting a, an elk, which was great. But, but you know, we called him into like twenty yards. Everything worked out. But it's one of those things. It's like you have oh, no so there idea. There was a happy ending to that story. There was a happy ending to that that's story. Cool. But at the same time, it's like that's like one in yeah a lot. Yeah. Like, and I think part of social media is great. Videos are great. Being inspired is great. But like, I don't think, and even still, like as much as I feel like I know about my equipment, when I sit down and I talk with you about all these little adjustments, it blows my mind, and it's almost like a conviction. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I I feel like I should know this. Like yeah. I, I, I've had your products for years. I use it and it's like, I know enough, but I don't know everything. And I, I don't necessarily feel like I need to know everything, but like if I was out in a si situation, like just in the last three, four months that we've been working on videos and concepts, I feel like my, I've elevated in the way I've, as far as like your guys' equipment, even thinking about other pieces of equipment that are on my bow to make sure that if I'm ever in the field, I can just make these reference marks. I can check. I know how to get it back to zero and just be dialed in, which is great. But I think I sh to me, it's more of a challenge. I think a lot of guys should like take that into account because yeah. you guys deal with customers. I'm sure all the time they're like, Oh man, I can't get this screw. Or I over tightened it. And you know, I, I've talked with Chris, you know, where a lot of people on your dials, you know, everyone before they go on a trip, this is what I was taught. You just tighten everything. And that's not always the right thing to do. Yeah. So I think if you, it, it, <laughs> More than just read the instructions on, you know, your packaging, watch a video, watch some of these video tips uh, that you guys are going to be putting out. That way, we, you know, you can really learn and have a little bit more skin in the game, right? Or knowledge base. Well, that is the goal of the videos is that hopefully we're going to start. I mean, because there's you can go find a thousand videos of running to the top of mountains and getting physically ready to go hunting. But it's really hard to find good, solid information about uh tuning concepts and what causes what and i mean oftentimes a lot of the guys that i used to hang around with when i was shooting and, and doing competition they, they looked at me like i was a doctor they come and tell me the symptoms and i go oh it's either this this or this on your equipment 
And most guys don't have the bow doctor on call or around. So when they have problems, they just deal with it or they, or they get frustrated and can't figure out what's going on with it. But yeah, hopefully the goal is by putting out some of these videos, uh, we'll create a database of the helping people figure out what's wrong easier with their equipment because there's just not a lot of information on it. There's a thousand videos, like I said, of how to uh, get yourself physically ready, but to understand your equipment when you're having problems and know what's what's right and wrong and, and how to recognize what's right and wrong. That's, that's half the battle is just knowing what it's supposed to look like. Right. Um, you know, the idea of setting your third axis at full draw, there's so many videos out there, videos out there that are saying, telling people to do it the wrong way. Right. And they don't talk about why it matters. You know, you got guys that are showing the idea that you should, uh, um, you know, use a, a leveling jig or whatever, or I'm going to set your third axis for you. We know that's not true because if you don't take into account the end guy with his grip and, and his and torque that he's influencing on the bow is taking into account, it can't be right. It can be very precisionly set, but it doesn't mean it's right for the guy that's going to use it. Yeah. And I don't know there's just a lot of that, that types, those types of things like uh, the book of supposed to's. I always, my dad always called it, and I, I tend to reference it as like there's this book of supposed to's you're supposed to do, but that book isn't always right. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and yeah, there's uh, getting to know your equipment. I mean, th- these guys that switch their bows out every year too and get new equipment. I mean, I always, I always struggled with that. I thought that was the craziest thing. It's like I just became one with the with the one I got last year. Yeah. And they're switching. I, I, I just feel like I'm one with it. Like it's it hits where I want to hit. I, I I feel like it's it's part of me now. And then you're encouraged to switch your bow out, and it's like, no, I want to. And in our industry, you had to always get the new bow just so you knew what the new coolest thing was so you could answer tech calls and whether it worked with your equipment and whatever. But for me, I just wanted familiarity. I wanted to have that go-to bow that I could always count on. Right. And and I knew if something was wrong, predictably what it was that was going to be wrong. Right. Well, and that's where I think a a lot of the customers, I'm not taking away from like tournament shooters, but a lot of your customer base is hunting. Mm Mm-hmm. But it comes with a perspective of like your products are on a tournament level with you know micro adjustments is probably the term that I would put out for it. And I think one of the biggest things that I don't want to say I hemmed and hawed about. I, it was more like when I saw the first multi ring system, it just looked kind of crazy. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, it looked like a target like at a circus or something like that. Chris showed me the ones that you the first initial. I, I have them somewhere where they had the like for tournament shooters where you could light them up. You could put the light in them and have the oh, yeah. the green or the blue fiber inside. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. But man, I'm going to be looking at this little, you know, bullseye type thing through my how's that going to help me? And when you start thinking about it, you start thinking about light diffraction and all that, which you've rocked my world with that. Like, that's huge. Yeah. And I've been on hunts where guys are just, you know, they're dialed. They're, they've been training all year, but they might not take into account that low light situation. Well, you know what's crazy is like a guy will will not own a bow that doesn't have a bubble in it or a sight that doesn't have a bubble in it because you have to have a bubble. How do you know you're holding the bow the same every single time? But just racking your bubble from one line being in the center versus the bubble just touching the left line and the different point of impact, they'll recognize that that's what happens. It's going to change my point of impact. I'm not going to have consistent results. If we don't shoot the same, if I don't draw back the bow the same to the exact same draw length, if I don't aim the same, if I don't do everything the same, if I don't have the bubble in the middle every time, I don't expect I'm going to get the same result every time, right? Right. But guys will run single rings on their heads 
And in different lighting scenarios, you might be where your rings, you're seeing way more than the ring. And you could be cheating and not realize that you're not centering the same every time. And they will totally just ignore that. Yep. But they, but and it's, and it's actually, it will, you'll be off more from that, not having a good fit with your peep in your ring. And, and the deviation of point of impact would be greater from that than it would be if you were just to have your bubble touching one line. Yeah. So, but they'll, they will not, not have the bubble in there, but they will look at our rings and laugh and be like, oh, that's crazy. And it's like, it's, it's not, it's actually very, very imperative. If you want to be able to, in all lighting scenarios, to have a consistent, repeatable aiming process, you have to have multiple concentric rings in different sizes so that in different lighting scenarios, you always have that same centering concept. So you can be centering on your pin guard the exact same every single time. But trying to get, I mean, I, we still have one of our most popular shops uh, that buys our products and sells a ton of our products and loves our, our company and promotes it. He takes those rings off every single time and won't give them to the customers. Really? Yeah. Oh, well. And it's like, and I think they're missing out. But, you know, the, the thing is, is it's the same thing happened with third axis. People thought that we were crazy about when we put a third axis adjustment in there. That there was a, a big resistance to that for years. And now you'd think half these other site companies invented it. Right. But the, the, the fight to get people to realize, because once again, it goes back to what I was talking about before, is one of the things that we always got complained about to us was that Spot Hog isn't making archery easier. We're making it harder. <laughs> We're adding all these things that you got to worry about and you got to address, and there's a specific way you have to do it. And But the, the end goal was, is like, yeah, we are making it a little more complicated because it's new, but as the masses gather together and realize, oh, third axis does matter, other companies put it in their sites. I mean, it's one of the things that somebody said uh, to my dad one time is that somebody copied our third axis designs. It was, I believe it was us and Copper John at the time that came out with the very first third axis uh, adjustable sights. Okay. And that was back when Sherlock was the most popular thing. Yep. Uh, someone copied us and put a third axis in theirs. And they asked my dad about it. We were at the, one of the trade shows. Oh, what do you think about so-and-so copied your third axis? And he goes, well, I like it. It means I'm not crazy. It's a good idea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the same thing with those rings is now we're starting to see people copying those rings and you could be, you could in one aspect, look at it and say, Oh, how dare them copy you. But in another way, it's like, no, it's validation. We are not crazy. These are legit things that help people shoot better. Right. And I want everybody to have those rings and we, we could have patented them out and made it impossible for people to copy it. But the reality is, is that helping the industry or is that holding it back? Well, to your point about people saying, you know, what the, the, the pushback that your dad got as far as like making archery harder because of these products that are, you know what you're creating is making people think about it or showing the imperfections and other archery products it's actually i think even more so needed because again you get guys like the the client that i had that showed up to camp literally with everything in the package yeah. <laughs> which is crazy and i i think about it josh like Again, I'm all for somebody that gets inspired and wants to do something new. They want to join the process of hunting mm -hmm. or they're going to maybe go do ASAs or whatever. They want to, you know, they want to be a spot shooter or whatever it is. I think that realm gets it a little bit more from all the little tedious things from put because they're in it. They're shooting 20 yards. They're at the shop. They can walk right to the counter and make an adjustment. When you're out in the field, you don't have that. But if you can bring target accuracy to the field in a hunting scenario, you're going to be way better off. And I, again, like I've had guys that came uh, that, that have come from different areas. They show up, they get their bow out, they shoot a few targets at 20, but then they don't practice at 60 or 80 or whatever their effective long range distance is. And then they'll take a poke out because they see a big bull or a big buck. And then all of a sudden everything just, and, and I'm not talking about people that are 
unexperienced. I'm talking about very experienced people and something goes bad, right? It's not that the arrow caught a limb. I, I, it's, it's those scenarios where everything was perfect. I don't know what happened. And if they would have information like this, I think it would challenge them to be better archers. It would challenge yeah. them and more than anything, to have more confidence behind what they're shooting. Again, I think one of the biggest things when I get behind my bow, I don't worry about it not performing because I've done all the steps. And I know, yeah, you know, even when I get to camp, I know it's dialed in exactly from where, where I left it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like there's like a good example is the tapes. Yep. How guys will, they go to set up their tape and they'll spend an hour shooting 60 yards and they'll shoot two shots at 20. But if you're, are you in the middle of the spot at 20 or are you at the top of the spot at 20 or are you the top of the X or are you at the bottom of the X? I mean, it matters. It does. And I, I can't harp enough that you should, if you're spending an hour at uh, 60, you should be spending at least 30 minutes at 20. Right making sure it is dead center, 100% dead on at 20 yards before you go back with your calibration tape and get your 60 mark to get your tape. And it's because, you know, we being off a little bit at 20 can end up being five yards off on your tapes and uh, end up punishing you. And guys, and that's another thing is I think that even once you, even if you did do the proper way and you did put all that extra time in at 20, and he did do a really good job at calibrating at 60, I still think you should go through your entire tape and go shoot 62 yards, go shoot 73 yards, go shoot 45 yards. I mean, you should literally go walk down your tape, and if you had the time and, and uh, opportunity, shoot every yard. Right. And make sure that everything is legit all the way out so that you know that those tape marks are legit. Don't find out at hunting camp right. that you're, you were sloppy when you put on your tape and all of a sudden you're hitting way low or way high at 70 yards. Right. Well, and you can see the guys that do put in the time that are shooting all the time that constantly, if it's on film or, or whatever it is that they're just making, they get it done. You know, they, they get it done. They know how to make shots. And obviously there's even a level of hunting where making a shot. Once you do it more and more and more, you just know what to do. There's just guys that have that gift, but yeah, well, it's I, nice I that it's, we have these shortcuts that we could build in like the sight tape and calibration tape. Yeah. But just because you have a shortcut to get you to be able to shoot quicker doesn't mean that you really should ignore due diligence of going back and making sure that things are right. Right. You really, it's because the only person you're punishing is you. Yeah. In the end, the, the person that's going to end up being the most frustrated, most upset over it's going to be you. Yeah. And it's because you just, you know, if you, you, you took the easy way out uh, and not really worked through your equipment and the settings that you got. So another thing that happens too is, is that, um, I meet people that are going on these really high-end hunts, but somebody else is setting their bow up for them completely, and they don't understand what's going on. Well, what are you going to do if you're out in the field on this really expensive hunt and you don't know how to fix your own stuff? Um, it's nice just to you know treat it like your car. I'm going to take it down the mechanic. I'll be back on Tuesday. Because you don't really necessarily need to need to know how your car works. Right. But when it comes to you know hunting and you're out in the middle of nowhere, because that's where the animals are, they're not downtown in your city, yeah. <laughs> there is it just as, as simple take it down to the shop when something's wrong. You got to literally work with it on the spot and figure out what's going on and that's why I, I think it's in everyone's best interest if you're wanting to do these guys are doing this extreme hunting. Uh they really should be putting as much effort as they do into getting physically ready for these these hunts is also starting to curb their knowledge on archery equipment and what causes what and how things work and I think it will make them be some more successful bow hunters if they can 
address because you know typically when does something go wrong at the worst time possible like when's your when's your your string stretch is it when you're out practicing in your backyard and you got all the time in the world or is it when you're you know six hours away from home and you're about ready to go hit the woods and you realize your string stretched yep i mean you may not be able to address it on the spot but at least you can know what you to expect out of your equipment that that's gonna what that happened or what happens when when that happens to you? How to be able to compensate for it? Right. And limp your way through your hunt, maybe. Or even like making marks uh, where your D loops at. I see guys like they'll be at camp or they uh, they'll draw back or their D loops just barely hanging on by a thread, and it's, mm-hmm. it's like don't make those mistakes. Yeah. Or, Change your rangefinder battery. <laughs> or like another one is like the third axis. Like everyone talks about getting their third axis set, but like uh, we just did a video together uh, today about that about. Just because you went and did it in the shop and you did the process doesn't mean it's right. And it wasn't. What, what means that it's right is going back and checking again. Like the people will go out and get their third axis set on their equipment and then it's like they forget about it. It's over. Oh, that's done. I don't have to worry about that anymore. And I'll be the first to tell you, no. Just because you said, I, I've done it myself. I'm, I'm one of the people that's been promoting third axis at full draw by the individual shooter since the very beginning, and I still check mine almost weekly. If my bow's set up and I'm going to go shoot, I, I will check my third axis weekly. And it's not about whether the, the sight has moved. It's a matter of am I grabbing the bow the same every time. Yeah, or and, and, I, I change stabilizers. Or you, you change stabilizers. And mine was off for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. And so. so just because you checked it once and it looked good, you should always double-check these things. Because once again, who's going to pay for it if, it if it's not right? you yeah one way or the other yeah well cool man i can't thank you enough for coming out to colorado getting these you know videos done and you know looking forward to doing more of them but uh yeah for anyone that's watching head over to spot hogs youtube check them out uh please submit questions if there's things that you have questions about i think those are uh those can be great insights to where we can create future videos on that and josh i really appreciate having you on yeah I appreciate you letting me come out and do this. Yeah, for sure, brother. All right.